0: And now hear God's holy word from Psalm 90 as we wrap up our study on the sequences and order of worship in the Bible that transforms our life. Hear God's holy word. Yahweh, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn man to destruction and say, return, O children of men. For a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it has passed and like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. They are like a sleep. In the morning, they are like grass which grows up. In the morning, it flourishes and grows up. In the evening, it is cut down and withers. For we have been consumed by your anger and by your wrath, we are terrified. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your countenance. For all our days have passed away in your wrath. We finish our years like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years. And if by reason of strength, they are 80 years, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. For it is soon cut off and we fly away. Who knows the power of your anger? For as the fear of you, so is your wrath. So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Return, O Yahweh, how long, and have compassion on your servants. O, satisfy us early with your mercy, that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad according to the days in which you have afflicted us, the years in which we have seen evil. Let your work appear to your servants and your glory to their children. And let the beauty of Yahweh our God be upon us and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for this psalm that was penned by your servant Moses, and we ask you indeed to help us by your spirit to number our days according to wisdom and establish the work of our hands and remind us of our need to rejoice and rest in your mighty acts in history. Help us as we reflect on these things today, guide us by your spirit in Jesus' name, amen. Deep in the Amazon jungle, there is an extremely isolated tribe of people known as the Pidaha people. That is P-I-R-A-H-H-A. P-I-R-A-H-A Pidaha. They have their own particular distinctive language that in terms of vocabulary and alphabet and grammar is thought to be the smallest and the leanest language ever studied. One peculiar feature of their language is that they do not have a past tense and they do not have a future tense. Rather, everything is referred to by whether it's in the realm of immediate experience or outside the realm of immediate experience. It is either in front of me or it's not. It's it's either passing away from me or coming toward me Or it is irrelevant. It's it's very much like small children. The way that peekaboo works and why it's so delightful for small children is that uh, it's if you're out of sight, you're out of mind. If if you're covered by a towel, you're gone. And then, oh, mom's there again. Oh, she's gone. Oh, she's there again. That's why peekaboo works. And this tribe is very much in that same mindset. At least in, in, in expression with their language, they only speak in the present tense. There's no word for yesterday. There's no word for tomorrow. They have a word for other day, which could mean either one. It's just not today. Their peculiar way of speaking and thinking finds expression in their culture. This is not just relegated to their language, but it works out in all kinds of ways in their society. They have no concept of making something today that could be used again other day. Uh, They have no tools. They have no weapons. They have uh, nothing made out of bone or wood or stone except a very simple bow and arrow and a a sharp rock to to scrape or sharpen an arrowhead. Sometimes they put together makeshift baskets made of twigs and leaves, Uh, but as soon as they're done carrying whatever they intended to use that basket for, they just throw the basket away. They have the same approach to their housing. They will assemble these leafy branches and make huts out of them, and uh, they'll sleep under these huts, But if a strong wind comes or a strong storm blows them away, they just laugh about it. And then they stack up more leafy branches and and build another hut again. They have no mathematics. They have no numbers. They don't even have one or two. They have only a loose concept of a little and a lot. But money doesn't make sense to them at all. They trade Brazil nuts with traders up and down the Amazon River. Uh, They trade nuts for for meats, cured meats, but they have no concept or no idea of curing and preserving meats for themselves, for the, for the future. They have no rituals or ceremonies, they have no music or dance, they have no words for colors. This tribe is fascinated, it's fascinated linguists and anthropologists and it stands as this amazing living artifact, a tribe frozen in history, completely cut off from the concerns and the influences of the modern world. Essentially, they are a pure, unadulterated expression of the pagan view of time and history. For the pagan, for the materialist, for the secular humanist, history does not have a story. History does not have a narrative. History is just one thing after another. Time is cyclical at best. If they go so far as to impose any pattern or design on time, they might say, well, everything just repeats itself. They may say that there is perhaps slow accidental mutation or adaptation, but it all comes down to the circle of life. There's no design, there's no order because there isn't a designer. There's not an architect, there's not a story writer. And so there's not a story being told through history for the pagan and the materialist. We as Christians would say, well, God is the God of history. He's also the God of the future. And he's working through human history to tell a story. He is moving humanity through stages of maturity and he's raising up a complete humanity as a bride for his son. But functionally, the average unbeliever doesn't understand or buy or own any of that. They're fixated primarily on the now, just like the Pidaha people. For many people in our society, there's very little thought given to other day. There's just today. There's very little thought given to anything other than the immediate present and how I feel in this moment and how things around me are making me feel and how I respond to them. We could name a million ways that people in our society are really orienting themselves toward the future and the fact that they are going to have to face the consequences of what they do today in the future like small children, pacified by distractions and entertainments, any thought of a bigger story into which my life fits is just out of sight and out of mind. The Christian story and the Christian faith brings us into a narrative that has both a past and a future. God's acts in history stretch out in time through our lives into the future and brings us into the story. The church then has always been interested in marking time. The church has always had a great interest in the record keeping of history, keeping an eye on the past, remembering it, celebrating what God has done for us in the past, and at the same time, maintaining an eye on the future. God directs us to do this through scriptures. This is not just a good thing to do. God required his people. God called his people in Israel to celebrate and memorialize his mighty acts on their behalf. Now, we on this side of the resurrection, on this side of the cross, uh, we know that there are no more important events in the world than the acts of Jesus in time, on earth, on our behalf. The life and work of, and ministry of Jesus have irreversibly changed the world. And because he's the Lord of history, he is Lord of time itself. All of creation, even the seasons and the passing of the years, point to the lordship of Jesus over all things. And because we are his people, we care about time. Because we are his people, we care about history. And we mark time so that we can redeem time. The passing of time, the courses of the sun, moon, and stars, the changing of the seasons are not irrelevant to God's people. They're not just silly aspects of this creaturely existence that we're hoping to be delivered from someday. When we shed these bodies and we go to the floaty place, we'll just float around for eternity and we won't be encumbered by time. Well, of course, we know That is absolutely false. It's through creation. It's through sun, moon, and stars, fall, winter, summer, uh, spring. It's through these things that God reveals himself, and God has committed to each of us a number of days and expects us to be faithful stewards of the time that he has given us and to number our days with wisdom. Moses reflects all of this in Psalm 90. Moses uh, has one psalm that we know of, among the 150 Psalms of, of the Bible, Moses, uh, from all that we see written of him, appears to have spent many of his days waiting. He has these uh, long periods of, of, of waiting and preparation interspersed with brief periods of, of, of action. Uh, brief periods of a lot of activity, and then long stretches of faithful, obedient patience. Moses waited 40 years in the house of Pharaoh, growing and learning in Pharaoh's house, until he had an opportunity to deliver his people. He has this great opportunity to deliver someone who's being oppressed and abused, but when he does that, his people don't want anything to do with him. They mock him, and they... Uh, drive him out. And he leaves uh, because of the threat of, of penalty from Pharaoh as well. He goes out to Midian. He meets a girl. He marries her. He tends her father's sheep for 40 years. So he grew up in Pharaoh's house for about 40 years. He has an opportunity to deliver his people, but that doesn't work out. So for the next 40 years, he goes and tends to sheep. And that's where he runs into the burning bush where God commissions him to go back to Egypt and deliver his people which God does. God delivers his people through the 10 plagues. He brings them through the Red Sea. He brings them to Mount Sinai. He constitutes them as a people. He gives them his law. He tells them to build his house. And then he sends them on to Canaan to conquer the land and to take it over. But of course, we know that they failed to do that. And so Moses has another 40 years of waiting and wandering. So at the end of his life, Moses reflects on all of this. In one sense, looking at time, he understands how quickly it has gone, how those years have run through his fingers, and then at the same time, um, how, how, how God has worked through and redeemed those years. He compares our short lives to the eternality of God. In verse four, he says, "'For a thousand years in your sight,' Are like yesterday when it is past, or like a watch in the night. You carry them away like a flood. He says, We get 70 years, and if we're blessed, we get 80. Uh, if we think that time goes quickly, how much more perspective on the shortness of our lives does God have in his vantage point on time? When he says a thousand years are like yesterday, he's not saying that time doesn't matter to God or that, or that, um, it's irrelevant. To the contrary, he's saying God has a perspective on time that transcends our own. Later, the apostle Peter's going to pick up on this, and he's going to comfort the churches. He's going to tell them, be patient, endure suffering, for uh, with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. That's not some mathematical formula to try to figure out. It's a declaration that God doesn't share our perspective on time. When we think an answer to prayer is taking forever to come. When we're waiting for some deliverance, it seems like it's taking forever. God, in his perspective of time, it's just right around the corner. When our lives are flying and we watch our children grow and it feels like everything is a blur, the Lord has a perspective on time to be able to slow it down and to work out all of his purposes with all the branches and fractals of what he's accomplishing in our lives. So, God's perspective on time is different from ours. And as we grow and mature, we gain both perspectives. Yes, it is fast. Yes, it is slow in all of these various ways. So in light of the fleeting nature of our lives, he says we're like grass that grows up in the morning and is cut down and withers at night. In light of this, Moses prays, teach us, Lord, to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. The faithful don't ignore time They learn how to number their days. How? How do we number our days? Well, later he says, and he prays, he asks God to satisfy us early with your mercy that we may rejoice and be glad all our days and establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Time is redeemed. Our days are numbered in two ways. First, in rejoicing and feasting and celebration. Secondly, with work. Both are essential. We work to provide for our houses. We work to educate and train our children. We work to provide for others. So much work that it doesn't seem like there's enough time to get it all done. Work is essential because our time is precious. We plan our days. We don't waste our days. But we understand that work isn't everything because not only do we redeem our time through work, we redeem our time through rejoicing and worship and feasting. That too is an indispensable way that we number our days with wisdom. So in order to do this well, we care about time. We mark time so that we can redeem time. Numbering our days with wisdom means that when we do set a time, Uh, for rejoicing and celebration, that we do that celebrating real events, things that happened in time, in history. We don't celebrate a philosophy or a moral system or or a political agenda. All of our rejoicing and celebration in Christ is founded upon the fact that God became man. And we respond to this by marking our times by the events of his life. You've noticed that we do this. We pay attention to uh, the, the, the seasons of the church calendar, we mark out and make a really big deal out of Easter and the season of Easter. We pay attention when is, when is Pentecost and we celebrate that, Uh, we're headed into the season of Advent and then the great season of Christmas and Epiphany. We mark all these things out. What is the biblical rationale for doing this? Is it just something neat to do? Is it just something cool to just be different and do this? Why do we follow the seasons of the church calendar? What is the rationale for this and, and how do you get there through the Bible? Well, the first thing that we need to understand is that what you celebrate tells me who you are. If your celebration is all centered around the civil calendar then you have your saints and you have your feast days and you have your holy convocations that are all all centered around uh, our, our national history. and some of those are fine. It's good to stop and give thanks to God for our liberty and our independence. Those are good things, uh, but that's not all there is. There are other things to rejoice in and celebrate. Um, you may center your life around the holidays on the hallmark calendar. I don't know I don't even know all of those Secretary's day and boss's day and Arbor Day, is that even a thing still? Are you still have Arbor, Groundhog Day. If that's your calendar, that shows me what's important to you. But time and history matter to the Christian faith, and we have a calendar because uh, we're marking and celebrating and rejoicing over real events in human history. And the gospel writers all, all are clear on this, that the things that they're writing down are history, So they say, in the time of Herod, this happened. In the time of Caesar Augustus, on this day, these things took place. The gospel is rooted in time because it's real. And so Jesus doesn't rescue us from time and history. He doesn't rescue us from the world, for that matter. He rescues us from sin and death so that we can reclaim the world and we can reclaim time for his glory. We aren't saved from time, we are saved in time so that we can consecrate it and reclaim it for God and mark those days with wisdom. God's work in history makes history meaningful and relevant and that's why calendars and chronologies and histories are significant for the Christian faith. And so we have the importance of all this spelled out from creation. Why is this important? Well, go back all the way to Genesis 1. On the fourth day of creation, God said, let there be lights in the firmaments of the heavens to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and seasons and for days and years. Now, we got the days and years down because we have always used the sun, moon, and stars as a as a calendar, we you know a year is one lap around the sun. Um, a month is one full uh, phase of the moon, one full cycle of the moon. A day is one rotation of the earth. We we've got that part for days and years. But when God created sun, moon, and stars, He also said, "Let them be for signs, and for seasons." And the word for seasons there, he's not just referring to fall and winter and spring and summer, that's not all. That same word seasons is used 200 times throughout the Old Testament for festival seasons, times for worship. In Leviticus 23, God describes uh, Israel's festival seasons to them, he lays this all out. And the word that he uses for feasts is the same word that God uses on the fourth day of creation. God sets up the sun, moon, and stars so that we know when to celebrate and we know when to rejoice and give thanks. From the beginning, God formed his creation to guide us in worship, to guide us in how to reflect upon his work and his grace and his redemption. And the cycles of the year tell the story of the gospel. So it's not some coincidence and it's not some accident. It's intentional. So in Leviticus 23, Yahweh gives his people a festal calendar that's synchronized with the seasons of the year. In spring, they were to celebrate Passover, and the theme of Passover is deliverance uh, from slavery in Egypt, just as the trees and plants in spring move from death to life, so they would be reminded during this time as they celebrate Passover, they would be reminded of their deliverance from death unto life. In the summer, they would celebrate Pentecost and uh, the summer is the season of growth and maturation and fruition. And so they were to celebrate the giving of the law by which they would grow in the spirit. So as the earth is productive, as the earth is fruitful, so we are a fruitful people when we obey Yahweh and obey his law. And then in the fall was the Feast of Tabernacles, that great feast where they would sacrifice bulls for all the nations of the world. And as they come to the harvest time, as they gather the harvest in, they thank God for his provision, and then they're pointed to that final spiritual harvest as they're focused on sacrificing for all of the nations. They uh, are, are pointed toward that great spiritual harvest. So in addition to these three seasons that God set up for them, they had all these other uh, great feasts. They had the weekly Sabbath. That was, a, that was a holy convocation. They had other feasts here and there, you know, Boaz, Boaz, Throws a big party after the harvest. That's when uh, Ruth lays down at his feet. There's that other crazy, uh, funny feast where uh, the girls of Shiloh dance around the fire at the end of Judges. Whatever's going on there, we're not real sure. Uh, when the men of Benjamin go grab a wife, um, that sounds like a fun thing. Uh, we might try having that, you know, uh, someday. Um, but uh, not really. We won't do that. Um, Golly, you know, the things that I might get quoted on and somebody would bring back up to me. No, that's probably not a good idea. Um, But there were these other feasts in Israel that we see, these other celebrations. And as Israel moved through history, they found that God gave them other reasons to celebrate. The whole book of Esther is about a great deliverance of God's people that resulted in the Feast of Purim. It's a new holiday, a, 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 a holiday where gifts are exchanged. And they're free to do this. They're free to celebrate God's mighty deliverance and work on their behalf. It's not some practice borrowed from the pagans. They say it's time to rejoice and that becomes a staple on their calendar. Later in the period between the Old and New Testament, God works out another deliverance in the time of the Maccabees and out of that came the celebration of Hanukkah. Now Jesus, the Lord Jesus would have grown up celebrating all of these. He would have celebrated an annual cycle of, of Passover a, a, and of Pentecost and of, and of tabernacles. And he would have celebrated Purim and he would have celebrated Hanukkah. He would have celebrated all these things. So in John chapter 10, we see Jesus goes up to the temple for the feast of dedication and it was winter. That's what John says. Well, what is the feast of dedication? Uh, you can look it up. That's Hanukkah. Jesus goes up to the temple during Hanukkah. So for those Christians who, and they're... they're um, They have their arguments, but they don't want to celebrate Christmas or Easter because, well, those are man-made holidays. And God doesn't tell us to celebrate these things. Well, if we can't make holidays and celebrate God's mighty acts in history, was it wrong for Jesus to have anything to do with Hanukkah or even Purim for that matter? Um, And of course, no, Jesus didn't sin And so if it was good for Jesus to enjoy the entire calendar of Jewish festivals, both those that were directly instituted by God and those his people instituted to praise him for his deliverance, if Jesus can enjoy all those, why can't we celebrate his birth and his resurrection, which, by the way, are the most important events in human history? I mean, I can celebrate your birthday because that's a pretty big deal. I like that you were born. I like that a lot. Um, I like that, you know, on the 4th of July, 1776, we declared our independence. I like that. That's a good thing to celebrate. I enjoy that. But those are not the most important events in human history. The most important thing is that Jesus came as a man, and that he lived a life of obedience, and that he uh, died on a cross, and he went into the grave and came out uh, in, in, in a resurrected, glorified body. That's the most important thing in the world. And so it seems good and praiseworthy and honorable to celebrate these things. And now that the church has been given dominion with and under Jesus, we have the authority to celebrate new covenant festivals and feasts. We don't celebrate Passover. We don't celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles because the things that those pointed to, even Pentecost has been transformed. Pentecost was an old covenant feast that's been transformed uh, into something new Uh, After the day of Pentecost, after Peter uh, and, and the church have the Spirit poured on them. So very early on, from very early on, the church established a new calendar based on the works of our Savior with the understanding that time has been redeemed by the work of Jesus, who is now Lord over all. Paul, um, Paul touches on this over in Colossians because the old calendar is still hanging over everybody's head. And so in Colossians chapter two, he says, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbath. He's referring to the old calendar that was... The the Hebrew calendar was uh, one that followed the moon. He says, "Don't don't keep that old calendar because he says those were a shadow of things to come, but the substances of Christ. So 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 don't hang around under that old calendar." Let no one cheat you of your reward, taking delight in false humility. And then later in chapter three, he says, if then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. He is, Jesus is our environment. Jesus is our temple. Jesus is our world and our promised land. So we arrange our lives around his life. We arrange our lives around the life of Jesus. And one way to do this, and one way to number our days with wisdom is to follow the church calendar. And I'm giving this as a, as a kind of a primer for those of you who haven't been through this yet and wondering why do these people do this? I'm also doing it as a review. So when you get a question, why do you do this? You have an answer. Well, we begin the church calendar with the great season of Advent, which is coming. It's right around the corner. This last Sunday of November will be the first Sunday of Advent. And the great season of Advent includes Advent and Christmas. And Epiphany. This season focuses first on the future coming of Christ and his final judgment. Then we move into Christmas, where we remember and celebrate his, his coming. He promised to come, um, and, and he, he is coming. He has come, and so we know he's going to keep his promises. And so we celebrate his birth at Christmas, and then we have the season of epiphany, which is all about all of the ways that Jesus revealed himself to be savior of the world. We start with uh, the, the remembering the, the wise men and we go through all the miracles of Jesus in our readings and in our hymns and in our focus. We, those are the things we meditate on. Th- this season, this great season of Advent, then then butts up against the great season of Easter, which includes Lent and Easter and Ascension in the spring. Don't, don't get too wigged out about Lent. I know that there's a lot of superstitions and really, really dumb practices around that. I'm gonna come back to that in just a minute Um, uh, because I used to get wigged out by it as well and so I I understand. Um, uh, But there's a way to redeem these things and use them rightly, I believe. And then, uh, so Easter includes Lent and Easter and Ascension. And then the third great season, the longest season is the season of Pentecost, the season that we're wrapping up right now where the focus is on the maturation and growth of the church by the work of the Holy Spirit. And so creation helps us to see this story. In the grand drama of the heavens above and of the changing of the seasons, just as for Israel, they, they had their celebrations matched to the season, so we do the same. Advent and Christmas come at the close of our calendar year where everything is dying, everything is winding down, there's less and less light, Uh, If this were the first time you ever experienced winter, you would think that the world was ending. You would think darkness has the victory. Everything is dead and cold. But then when the days get their darkest, things start to turn around and light gets stronger. And that's when we begin to celebrate the incarnation. Jesus came at the darkest time where it looked like everything was really over for Israel. There's no revelation. There's no hope, no future. Death reigns over the whole world. But here comes Jesus and he fights back against the darkness. Light gradually overtakes the darkness in the middle of winter, but it's gonna take time for the sun to have its full effect. And so from mid to late winter, the light has come, but the trees are still dormant. There are no flowers or fruit, So this is the season where we remember the temptation and the betrayal and the trial and the sufferings of Jesus throughout the season of Lent. That's just the old word for spring. That's the old English word for spring. Lengthen or lengthen uh, was the name of the season where the days began to lengthen. Um, We have seen it abused and we've seen all kinds of really dumb superstitions crop up around it. We trivialize it, you know, with fish sticks on Friday and you know, I'm gonna give up Krispy Kreme donuts for Lent and that kind of really goofy stuff. No, that's nonsense and, and there's no spiritual value in any of that, uh, but these seasons go way back to the earliest years, the early centuries of the church and we can reclaim them. We use this time to reflect on our own sins that were cause of the suffering of Jesus. We remember that Jesus was the light of the world but the world didn't receive him. And as that season winds down, suddenly everything comes to life. There's life everywhere. Flowers and leaves on the trees and green grass and birds and bees and weddings and babies and all kinds of fun things. In the spring, the world comes back to life. And as the world returns to life, it's the time of resurrection. And we celebrate Easter. And indeed, Jesus' resurrection brings life to the whole world. And then we move into summer, which is a time of growth and a time of fruit bearing and a time of maturation and productivity. And that's the season of Pentecost. We celebrate the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and we acknowledge the way that the Spirit matures humanity and brings us to the harvest, which points to the final harvest and judgment. And there we wrap all the way back around to Advent and remembering the future judgment and the future coming of the Lord Jesus. So you see the seasons play this all out for us, and they do this every year, and they repeat their rhythms. Uh, if we were in the Southern Hemisphere, I would make an argument that we celebrate Christmas in July, which is the darkest and coldest time, so that we can follow the seasons. But we're in the Northern Hemisphere, so it doesn't, it doesn't matter. Uh, we can follow, follow it just as it is. But you know, it isn't necessary Uh, God didn't have to make things this way. We don't have to have seasons or weather. It could be sunny and 72 every single day with a gentle breeze, but that's not how God God designed the world. There are hot days and cold days. There are clear and cloudy days. There are soft breezes and great storms. There are beautiful sunny days that make you wanna run outside and roll in the grass. There's dark and gloomy days that make you not even wanna put your head out the door because it's just so dark and sad. Kind of like life. We have days where we have unbelievable joy and happiness and success. We have days where life is painful and tough and uncomfortable. Our lives and all of history moves forward, just like creation moves through the seasons. And this is how God wants it to be. This is good. And this is how things get more glorious and better. We are created to live our lives in rhythm with the seasons. And the church throughout history, over the centuries, has taken advantage of the seasons to use them to number our days with wisdom according to the life and work of Jesus. Just like Moses prayed. He said, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And Solomon writes in Proverbs 15, 15, all the days of the afflicted are evil, but he who is of a merry heart has a continual feast. And that's what the church calendar does for it. It always gives us something else to look forward to. What's the next feast? What's the next party? What's the next good thing on the calendar? Because we have a continual feast. We realize that the festivals and feast days and holidays aren't just for the children, you know, just to give them something fun to do. It's not just a silly reason to decorate the house or eat something different. We could just really take it or leave it. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. In our very pragmatic world, We think of holidays as kind of a, you know, it's just a short break from work. We eat, we get presents, you take off a day, you take off a couple days, and then you get back to your real work, get back to the really important stuff. Because after all, holidays are impractical, there are a lot of fuss, they're expensive, and it's just too much sometimes. You think, oh, it's just, maybe this year I ought to skip it, because it's just too much fuss. Just skip the whole thing, I'll tell you what. You don't buy me anything, I won't buy you anything. You don't invite me to your house, I won't invite you to my house, let's just make an agreement and that's how how it'll be. That sounds like a really serious, no-nonsense approach, but that's really warped and that's really upside down. Festivity is serious business. Whether or not you celebrate the most important events in the history of the world is not a peripheral matter. You can't take it or leave it. God commanded his people to follow a certain calendar of feast days and celebrations, and he told them, stop what you're doing. Stop your work. These are my days. Be prepared to set aside your time and your money because you're going to have a party, and I want you to buy bread and meat and wine, and I want you to sing, and I want you to laugh, and I want you to dance and cut up. I want you to eat the fat and drink the sweet as Nehemiah said in our text last week. Um, Deuteronomy 14 has one of the most delightful little commands from God. Um, I hope you have this underlined or highlighted in your Bible because it is so, it's so good. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 14, uh, verse 22, this is where God is directing his people at the end of the year, bring your tithe to the place that I've appointed, bring the fruits of your harvest there, uh, and and give them uh, to to the, the work of the temple. Um, and, and you get to eat and drink there before me as well. But then he says, there may be a time in history where the kingdom has spread out so far that you can't travel. You can't bring all of the tithe of your produce. You can't bring all of your increase, the tithe of your increase, down to the temple. So I've got another plan for you. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22 you shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before Yahweh your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, that you may learn to fear Yahweh your God always. But if the journey is too long for you so that you're not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where Yahweh your God chooses to put his name is too far from you when Yahweh your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money Take the money in your hand and go to the place which Yahweh your God chooses and you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before Yahweh your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates for he has no part nor inheritance with you. If the load is too big and you can't carry everything, the tithe of your produce, then I want you to sell it and I want you to take that bag of money, a 10% of your increase, and I want you to have a party. I want you to buy ox and sheep wine or similar drink. Uh, The old King James says strong drink. A couple of English translations just come out and say beer there. I want you to buy wine or beer or whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before Yahweh your God. Now do the math real quick. What kind of party could you have with 10% of last year's income. I mean, just move the decimal, it'll take a second, move the decimal and think what kind of party you could throw with 10% of your income. Now, what if everybody else you knew was also throwing a party with 10% of their income? What kind of celebration, what kind of festival could we throw? I mean, we'd really put on the dog, wouldn't we? We'd make the NC State Fair look like a kid's backyard birthday party if we all did that at the same time. And that's what God required. He says, this is what, you better do this. You better throw a party. This is what I want you to do. I want you to celebrate because you are my people. And I want you to have such a huge celebration that even the Levite who has no inheritance also can celebrate. Everyone, even the strangers will have plenty. There'll be so much left over that you won't have enough baskets to contain it no one is going to do without. That's the kind of God we serve, and that's what he delights in. He hasn't changed. That's what he wants from his people. Celebration is dead serious business. You are required to have fun as God's son or daughter. You better do it. You know, the God's law is so onerous, it's so heavy, you know, it's so burdensome that he tells you to buy beer. That's just really, that's really <laughs> rough. All of this is essential for God's people. God's people have always put a priority on celebrating his mighty acts. The birth of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus, the sending of his spirit, that is what he calls for. That is how we celebrate and mark our days. So following a calendar of celebration does three things very quickly, at least. It does so many things for us, but I'm just gonna give you three, quickly. One, following a calendar of celebration disciplines us in joy and festivity. There may be years where you don't feel like celebrating this or that. You may not feel this Christmas like putting up a tree or giving gifts. Maybe you had a tough year. Maybe you lost someone who's really close to you. Maybe you are battling illness and you just don't have it in you. But these are fixed days. You don't get to choose when they're coming. And when that day comes, you're called to rejoice on that day. Like you are called to worship, you are called to rise above your sorrows and celebrate in spite of your situation because you want to acknowledge God's work throughout your life. Yes, today is really sad and today is rough and today has got a lot of challenges, but I'm called to rise above my sorrows and celebrate acknowledging God's work throughout my t- entire life and not let temporary sorrows obscure that. You can say, because Jesus has come, because he has defeated the grave, because he's poured out his his spirit, all of human history is headed toward that great harvest. And everything's really going to be fine. Everything's going to be better than fine. And we're going to be okay. And we're going to be happy about that. These celebrations teach us that sorrow and bitter providences are temporary, that they're part of life We know that these bad things in life are just chapters in a bigger story that we're a part of. It puts a narrative. The the, the calendar puts a narrative on these long days of waiting and waiting and wondering when the next thing is going to come. When we think we aren't getting anywhere, when we think we're spinning our wheels, these celebrations remind us, no, you are going somewhere. And all of history is going somewhere. And and, and the church is headed somewhere. And everything is moving and improving and reforming in ways that you can't see because you don't have God's perspective on time. But trust that even though it may be winter today, spring is coming and it's right around the corner and it comes every year. So don't despair. That's the first thing it does. It disciplines us in joy and festivity. Secondly, this calendar gives us an identity and it gives us a culture. Everyone in the Western world is reverting back to a kind of tribalism because everybody feels disconnected and the culture is so splintered. So they grasp for any identity, any shared story, any community. Well, you and I, we don't have to go looking for a culture. We don't have to go looking for a tradition or a story, we already have those things, we already have that heritage, and we have the only substantial, real, lasting, redeeming story out there. And this calendar shapes us, and we're being molded into a people with one mind and one heart. Our holidays are reference points to who we are and what is important to us. They remind us of what is at the center of life and God did this for Israel too, their feast days identified who they were. They understood we're part of a delivered people. So, too, our feast days remind us that we are the people who belong to Jesus. We mark time by the events of his life. And every year we remind each other of these events by singing them back and forth to each other, by reading them and hearing them. And it never gets old. Each time we hear it, it's like it's the first time we've heard it. Our calendar gives us an identity. Thirdly, our calendar tells a story, it preaches the gospel. Through the grand drama of the seasons and the feast days, we show the world we really believe this stuff. (laughs) We're We're not just playing with it. We are serious about it. We are defined and our lives are shaped by the work of Jesus. And so this is what we do. We celebrate it because we believe it. Look at what Jesus' people are known for. They are known for deep, unshakable, irrepressible joy. No matter what is going on, or who in Washington tells us we can or can't gather for whatever reason, we know that we stop and we can be really happy in the midst of whatever's going on. And we say to everyone, don't you want to be a part of this? Don't you want to come? Because living in covenant with the creator of the universe and living with his people is the happiest thing in the world. And I want everybody around me to understand that. I want my children to get that. I want them to know that the covenant is the happiest place on earth. This is where we have all the best that life has to offer. This is where the fun is. And whatever is out there, whatever it is, can't come close to what we have here. I mean, does, does Allah tell his people to go buy whatever their heart desires and have a party? Uh, do, do any of the gods of the nations tell people to do this? They think they're having fun, but they're destroying themselves. And they're destroying each other. In the covenant, this is the place of life. This is the place of the fulfillment of all your needs and all your desires. This is the place of deep, abiding, everlasting joy. And so, let us be earnest and tenacious and unyielding with our feast days. Make a really, really, really big deal. As much as you can, make a big deal out of Christmas and Easter and Pentecost and the other days that we acknowledge and celebrate. Be determined that we're going to enjoy them and we're going to rejoice in Jesus. We're going to be dead serious about expressing our joy in the God who gives us life and salvation through his son, Jesus. And we will do this if God permits. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you and we give you thanks for all the ways that you have saved and delivered and given us life and blessed us. And we pray that we would always be ready and willing to rejoice in a way that shows the world that indeed we, as your people, uh, are, are blessed and sustained and really are the happiest people on earth uh, because of Jesus and because of his work. So, Father, continue to encourage us by this and in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.